According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 1 as we return where we left it on Sunday. Philippians chapter 1, getting down towards the bottom part of this paragraph and getting ready for the last paragraph of uh, Philippians chapter 1. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are indeed filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to receive eternal instruction. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do rejoice in your faithfulness. And uh, Father, our, our country's going through it right now. Our state's going through it. And uh, We've got uh, pastor friends and churches and loved ones all over the Houston area especially and down the coast. Father, we lift them up and thank you for your blessings. At this point, Father, we, at least in our church circles, have no loss of life and uh, there's been some flooding and property damage, but uh, all in all, Father, uh, you are so merciful and we want to thank you and praise you. We do pray for these pastors and their shepherding of their flocks and we pray for believers to keep their eyes where they need to be and uh, to keep the temporal and the spiritual distinct and uh, allow us father to uh, to give you the praise and the glory the rain falls on the just and the unjust and so uh, we thank you for the illustration and uh, now father tonight as the word goes forth we call upon your faithfulness to bless us in your truth father open the eyes of our understanding we thank you in jesus christ's name amen all right we have a microphone ready to go. Actually, I left my runner at home tonight, so we'll need a substitute runner if Lewis wants to do it. There we go. You don't need a Spider-Man shirt or anything. We'll let you. All right, there you go. Lead-off question for tonight. There were a couple that came in by email, and uh, including Ellen had one, and um, Bill had one. So let me open those up. Uh, Ellen's answer is maybe, and Bill's answer is no. <laughs> All right, I'm joking. Um, Ellen had a question from uh, Lamentations 1, verses 21 and 22, um, and asking if Ezekiel 25 and 29 could be God's response to Jeremiah's request. Lamentations 121 says, They have heard that I groan, there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my calamity. They are glad that you have done it. Oh, that you would bring the day which you have proclaimed, that uh, they may become like me. And uh, verse 22, Let all their wickedness come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me for all my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. Um, so, um, couple ways to answer this actually this is not uh, this is Jeremiah speaking but he's not speaking on his own behalf so it's not his his complaint it's not his enemies he's speaking from the standpoint of Jerusalem he's speaking from the standpoint there in, fa- in fact um, my distress my uh, verse 19 I called to my lovers but they deceived me that's not Jeremiah talking about his lovers this is he's he's speaking with the voice of Jerusalem on behalf of Jerusalem and Jerusalem's lamentation so um, other than that, though, it is true that God curses those who curse the Jews and He blesses those who bless the, the Jews. And so obviously the nations that were cursing the Jewish people do come under judgment. And so that's, that's going to be true. And that's true according to um, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and all the prophets, including the two chapters you mentioned. Um, and that. So it's not a direct response to this specific prayer request. It is, and I, I think what it says there, uh, oh, that you would bring the day which you have proclaimed. And that's God's promise that I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. That's the proclamation that's made. And, and yes, so when he judges the, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Egyptians and all the, the nations that get mentioned in so many of the prophetic passages, then yes, that's a fulfillment of what God has promised there. So is that an answer what you were asking? Okay. And then uh, Bill had a question too related to creation and uh, the Bill Winstrom curriculum and Grace Notes. Um, 
when Christ spoke, let there be light, who made the light? Was that the Holy Spirit that made light? Um, how does that work? Yes, the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the deep, um, but God said, let there be light, and there was light. And I, I don't really view the Spirit's role in making that happen so much as I view the Father directing it and the Son speaking it. And uh, the only reference to the Spirit in this context is the brooding or moving over the surface of the waters there in, uh, in verse 2. So I'd have to read the, the Winston material. It's been a while and, and to really dig down into what he was addressing on that. But you have a follow-up to that? I don't think you're on. You push the button there. All right. Basically, I think what he was saying, what, actually what he did say was uh, when it came to the creation account, uh, Jesus spoke mm-hmm. and that speaking was more of a command to the Holy Spirit to go about doing the creation aspects of it to where, from my understanding, Jesus spoke, it was. Yeah, I, I take it uh, because Jesus is the Word, and He is the Logos. And so uh, when God said, I believe it was the Father who willed it and the Son who did it, because it's the Word that accomplished, it's by the Word of the Lord that the heavens were made. So um, that's, uh, that's, that's my understanding of it. I have uh, another question if I could uh-huh. real quick. Um, I, uh, I had spoke with Pastor Dan about this, but I wanted to speak with you about it as well. Uh, when you take into, uh, into account the creation of Eve and you take into account the, uh, a uh, traditionist viewpoint, when God used the rib of Adam to create Eve, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of how to word this, is that um, evidence of the traducianism, which means that basically the rib of Adam possessed all the DNA uh, needed to produce uh, body, soul, dead spirit from a traducianist point of view. Yeah, I don't know. I think the, the creation of Eve was so unique that um, you, you wouldn't really want to look at that as an example and say, well, that connects or relates to this. Um, I, I think uh, in the image of God, he made him male and female. He created them. So... Uh, Eve was inside of Adam, and if, you know you could think of that as her DNA and her soul, particularly, was uh, was there in, inside of Adam, uh, even as Adam's soul was there. Adam became a living soul when the breath of lives were breathed into him. But um, I, I just think it's a unique creative event of God, and and you can't take a single unique event and then try to draw conclusions on it either for the tradition view or against the tradition view. And, but I've seen people try to, to defend both positions using the same unique event. That's why I was kind of wondering, because to me there was just such a mm-hmm. stark difference in between the creation of Adam to the creation of Eve. And I just wanted to make oh, yeah. sure that I wasn't you know, reading more into something than that really wasn't there. And Genesis does not declare that he breathed into Eve the breath of lives. There's no reference of God's breath. It's just the fashioning of the rib, and, and he brought her to the man. So that's... That the absence of that, it's an argument from silence, but I think it's a loud silence in the fact that it's not there when it is there for Adam's verse and the description on that. By the way, if you're not familiar with tradushian, what tradushian means is um, that uh, when humans procreate, that we procreate body, soul, and dead human spirit. We, we procreate after our kind. And so it's not just genetics. It's not just uh, the fact that a father and a mother produce a body uh, but a, a, a human being is, is produced. That's body, soul, and dead human spirit that needs to be saved. And so uh, if you don't hold to the Traducian view, then generally you have to assume then that God spontaneously creates every soul at the, and, and dead human spirit at the, uh, at the moment that the child is either conceived or exits the birth canal, um, depending on what pastor you're listening to. But the Traducian view is what Schaefer held to, what Schofield held to, held to. Geisler has it in his systematic theology, and that's what, what I understand in, in connection to that. Because everything recre- uh, procreates after its kind, from dogs and cats to apple trees to banana trees to human beings, we all um, procreate after our kind. And that's, uh, that would include the, the soul and the dead human spirit. So. All right, good question, appreciate that. Other questions? We've got new business up here on the front row. Now that we've cleared away the old business. Yes, sir. 
is there a general rule of thumb for interpreting in the New Testament the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God versus like David's kingdom? Um, yeah, rule of thumb is that the kingdom of heaven is only mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. So um, that, that, that tells you a lot right there. And parallel texts in Mark and Luke will reference the kingdom of God in the same context that Matthew refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. And so based on that, um, I accept the interchangeability of those expressions. And that uh, there, but there are some that insist on a very rigid distinction to be found even though the synoptic gospels parallel them the way that they do. And, and I don't understand how they can do that given what, what the synoptic gospels do in, uh, in, those, in those messages. The Davidic kingdom though is something else. That's the kingdom of Israel which is a nation, an earthly nation in the midst of other earthly nations. It's a covenant nation that serves God's earthly purposes surrounded by other, by Gentile nations. And so that's distinct from anything heavenly. So then what does the kingdom of heaven refer to? The kingdom of heaven in the sense of thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven in the sense that uh, that there are, of course, a heavenly host and there are heavenly citizens, and you and I are citizens of heaven. We're not, you know, when, when we're transferred from the domain of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son. When Jesus told Pontius Pilate, you know, my kingdom is not of this earth, he wasn't talking about the Davidic throne. Of course, that's of this earth. It's always been of this earth. But given that he'd been rejected as the Davidic king and he was being crucified, uh, he wasn't speaking of the Davidic kingdom when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so then he was referencing, of course, the kingdom of heaven in that aspect. There's also, I think, I coined a term, and I, it hasn't really created, it hasn't really uh, uh, achieved uh, notoriety yet nationwide or around the world, but uh, kingdom of heaven mystery state. In Matthew 13, when you start speaking of the kingdom of heaven as a mystery, you know, um, it's, it is interesting. So... Um, it, because it has been delayed. They rejected their king. It's been, he's been crucified. He's gone back to sit at the Father's right hand until the enemies be made a footstool for his feet and so forth. So the kingdom is very much delayed and it has not yet been manifest upon this earth. But in the sense of... Uh, did I answer your question? What were you asking? I got lost there. Does the kingdom of heaven just refer to heaven? Oh, no, no, no. no. Yeah, okay. I see what you... What is the kingdom of heaven? Yeah. What are you saying? What is the, okay. Um... Yeah, I, I want to think of the best way to answer this. It's almost like saying, you know, what is God? You know, and let me think. Um, it, it's okay. So the the kingdom of he- the kingdom of David, the, the kingdom of Israel has always been an earthly nation. The Jewish nation has always been an earthly nation. But there is coming a time when God comes to earth, when God becomes a man, and and then and so in that sense, then the kingdom of heaven comes to earth and is. Is, is united, is that the best way to say that? Is, is linked to, to the Jewish kingdom simply because, and, and maybe Robert can help me out too, there's, there's a sense in which different realms can become united because they're in personal union by virtue of their king, right? Because their king is heir to this throne and he's also heir to that throne and so as long as you know, he's alive, then you know, those, those kingdoms are united in, in that sense. And then that might even form a useful um, analogy to describe how the kingdom of heaven does come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and yet it's, it's the same, it, there's overlap between Israel and the kingdom of heaven. Maybe I just made matters worse. But um, my question is still, so what is the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> it is uh, born-again believers in Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's the bride. Well, but it's bigger than that because the bride is only our stewardship. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, but so when the kingdom is manifest on this earth, when there are redeemed humans on this earth, you know what? Let me uh, let me hold off on this till I can jot myself a note because there are there are good definitions of the kingdom of heaven and there are problematic definitions of the kingdom of heaven, and I have never in twenty four years written my own definition of the kingdom of heaven, and now I. I feel compelled to do so. So I will, uh, I will do that. And I have a kind of a follow-on question. Okay. So let me, exp- let me, let me ask the question, then I'm going to explain it. Yeah. Does forever mean forever? Yeah. In other words, is the Davidic kingdom, I mean, it was promised 
forever, right? Uh -huh. And does that mean it's going to go on through all those final ages where everything goes to Christ and then Christ gives everything to God the Father? World without end, amen. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and Jesus reigns forever. And even when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, he doesn't stop reigning. He delivers the kingdom of the Father, but he continues to reign with the Father in, uh, in eternity future, the Father and Son that reign together in their, in their vice regency or co-regency, if you will. Um, yeah. Okay. Hey, you're welcome. You're very welcome. All right, cross the aisle again. We're going to go a few rows back. I just feel like I messed everything up with that kingdom of heaven question. So. Yes, ma'am. Regarding the kingdom of heaven. Yes. All right. <laughs> no. This is Ezekiel 34, 23 to 24, and it, it speaks of um, David returning as the shepherd of Israel mm -hmm. in the millennium. I'd never heard that before, that yeah. he was going to be the ruler or assigned to Israel or the ruler, whatever the term is, uh -huh. and Jesus Christ is the ruler of the earth. Correct so far? Yes and no. Um, this passage another maybe <laughs> yeah no 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 this is a yes and no um in the millennial okay in uh, in the new heavens and new earth christ reigns over the whole world as the son of man as son of man as uh, as well as being the son of david on the davidic throne and he will always be the son of david he will always be on the davidic throne um and it's interesting it's david my prince uh there's mm -hmm. there's uh, david the king and there's david the prince and this passage speaks of david the prince and, uh, you know, normal kings have offspring and they call them princes and princesses and whatnot. Um, Jesus will not be procreating literal offspring in the millennium, but he will have princes that will reign under him. And uh, David being one of those princes being under. And I've got a theory about it, I can't prove it, but based on this David example that we have here, can you imagine? You've got a resurrected King David. What's he going to do for a thousand years? Just walk around shaking people's hands saying, hi, I'm David. I think this passage talks about the role that he's going to have as, as a prince. And I suspect Solomon and Rehoboam and Hezekiah and all the godly kings of, of Judah that are all likewise resurrected, that, uh, you know, what do you do if you have a king on the throne and 30 previous kings come back to life again? You know, I mean, generally in human terms, you only get to become king when the previous king died, right? But now they're all coming back. And so now you've got all these simultaneous kings on the earth, and it's kind of, kind of fun to think about that. So Anyway, with, Dave, with, the servant, with the shepherd David, with the king David, and with prince David all being spoken of by the prophet Ezekiel, I think there's a reason why those, that variety of terms are there. And so I see Jesus Christ reigning on the throne as the, as the greater son of David, the king of kings and lord of lords, and the resurrected David, son of Jesse from Bethlehem, uh, you know, the historic David author of the Psalms, uh, he will be the prince, the crown prince, and he'll be the prince regent, I mean the prince, uh, the number one prince, because he's the he's the uh, he's the uh, the one that all the other princes descended from. So Solomon and Rehoboam and Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat and all those guys. But the implication, not the implication, it says that he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. In mm -hmm. verse twenty three, mm -hmm. isn't that isn't that more of an authoritarian role mm -hmm. than just? I can't picture prince as kind of standing by and watching the king rule. Oh, they, they, there's know, other passages too that speak of the prince and the roles that the prince will have. So okay. they'll, have, they'll have other responsibilities throughout the whole kingdom of Israel. Okay. Yeah. All right, thank you. All right, you're welcome. All right, front row. We'll give Robert our last call here tonight. Well, you guys came prepared. That's outstanding. Okay, go ahead. The German Empire, you had Kaiser Wilhelm was the king of Prussia and the German emperor. Yes. There was the king of Bavaria and Saxony and a bunch of other places. Uh -huh. And each of them had lesser princes under them. Mm -hmm. So the, the way it worked was just like I think what's happening here. You're going to have the emperor, mm -hmm. the, the overall king, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then David, of course is the eternal king of Israel. And then there's others, princes, whoever will assist in the rule of the, uh, of the, of the, the world. That's a good illustration. I, I can go with that. The, uh, 
Well, even the title King of Kings demands that there's other kings underneath yeah. him, right? Uh, if, if there aren't other kings that serve him, then he's not King of Kings. And that it kind of becomes a nonsensical title with that. Same thing with God of Gods uh, with respect yeah, to the They angel. didn't do away with the King of Bavaria when right. Wilhelm, became, Wilhelm I became king, uh, Emperor of Germany. And German even, uh, even the Landgraviate of Hesse-Kassel, where the Bolanders came from, um, <laughs> he, uh, he ended up handing off his Landgraviate to his little brother to, because he ended up the king of Sweden somehow. So, you know, it's just bizarre <laughs> when this German guy decides to be king of Sweden and uh, leaves his little principality in Germany to his little brother. So anyway, and then Bolanders started adding an H to their name because it was more Swedish that way to have a B-O-H-L-E-N-D-E-R and whatever. So, no, that's a little history and family history and goofiness for tonight. So, all right. Well, appreciate those questions. Let's uh, get over to where we left off on Sunday. All right. We're talking about the greater progress of the gospel and how it motivated how it motivated two groups of people. And so this has been main point three in the outline. Produce goads to action among two widely divergent groups of believers. I'm calling them the good guys on the one hand and the bad guys on the other hand. Even though they're all saved, um, the bad guys though are sadly motivated by demonic wisdom. That the wisdom from below that's earthly, natural, demonic. And based on that terrible motivation, they are serving um, under a pretense, uh, pretense, all right? And we're going to learn about pretenses tonight, and we're going to talk about some of these things here as we uh, get into that. So let me zip ahead through some of these, get to the good guys and the bad guys. Here's the good guys, daring to speak without fear, being fearless because of the goodwill or good pleasure of God, out of love, knowing God's appointments from pure motives. This is a description of the good guys. What was motivating them? What was uh, pushing their buttons? What was getting them off the stick and getting them engaged in the, in the ministry? And it was all positive. In, uh, and, and we can take that as a, as a chain and we want to emulate that. And then there's this crowd. Okay? I'm calling them the bad guys, and that's probably not fair. They are saved, but they do need to repent. They need to adjust their attitude. And, and God needs to do that uh, to uh, adjust their attitude. And uh, they're motivated by envy and strife. That's not good. All right. And um, out of selfish ambition. That's not good. And thinking to cause Paul distress. Why is that a goal? You know, why, why are you trying to cause trouble for, uh, for your apostle? And so. Here's a chain of things. And, and you piece them together from you know, verse 15 to verse 16 to verse 17 and you take all these little glimpses of them uh, from all these verses and you combine them together in this picture and the, this crowd is, is a wreck. And uh, why, why do you even, you know, man. Um, but here they are. And they're going to take advantage of Paul's imprisonment to, uh, to do even more damage. You know, they're probably stuff they're, they're engaged in, they're excited to be in ministry uh, I suspect if Paul was a free man, he probably wouldn't have them in the pulpit. You know, he'd probably uh, be dealing with them and rebuking them and doing some other things. But you know, he's not really in the picture at this point. He's not really hands-on. And, and there they go, and they they're just jumping into the ministry with uh, all their all their bad motivation and uh, and the things there. So these two groups are interesting. Well, then Paul then comes to a conclusion, and he asks a question. And I want to ask the same question, and uh, the question is in verse 18, is what then? Or we might say, so what? <laughs> right? Or who cares? Or what am I saying? What, what, what's this all about? What then? Only this. So he has a kind of a rhetorical question, and he answers it in one way and one way only. He says, in every way, uh, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. In this I rejoice. And so even he's, of course he's, I expect, he's doubly happy about the good guys and what they're doing and for the right reasons of why they're doing it. Of course he's excited about that. But even the other crowd, even the group I'm calling the bad guys, um, he says, you know what? At least at the end of the day they're preaching Christ. And uh, even their motivations are wrong and he's not 
complimenting anything with respect to that, the reasons why they're doing are terrible, but they're preaching Christ. And so he says, so if nothing else, I'll thank God for that. And, and I think that's a pattern for us. We want to learn from that. We want to, we want to maybe uh, consider how God um, opens our eyes to see, oh, okay, well, if nothing else, <laughs> okay, at least there's that, okay, you know. And, and, and I think it's useful. I think it's useful not only from the pattern that we have here, but from other illustrations and other things that we've spoken of before, I've illustrated before, in, uh, in the sense that uh, you've, got, you've got brothers and sisters, and they, they, we have almost nothing in common with them other than the fact that they're saved and we're saved and we're going to go to heaven and we're going to spend forever with them. But, you know, uh, their, their current church traditions are not ours and their practices are not ours and their, uh, some of the um, tongue speaking and, and other Pentecostal stuff is making me kind of nervous. And, and you know what I'm saying? But we're saved. They're saved. They profess Christ. So at the end of the day, if, uh, if I'm sitting in a waiting room talking to them, I'm going to fellowship over what we have in common. And uh, if, if nothing else, we're just going to celebrate the fact that they know the Lord and I know the Lord and we can, uh, we can take it from there. And that way we're not, I'm not trying to fix them or correct their bad doctrine. They're not trying to fix me and correct my bad doctrine and, and any of that. See, And so we have a pattern here that I think we can apply in a lot of different realms um, as we see Paul use it here, as we see Paul use it in other passages as well. So let's kind of talk about that here a little bit. This what then question. So point four, if you're keeping your outline and writing these points down as, as they come to you. Uh, what then? This what then question. What then? Okay. And, um, and it is kind of curious to me because he's finally answering the why. We don't often get a lot of whys. Uh, Paul wanted the Philippians to know about his circumstances. Remember that? In verses 12 and 13, uh, he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Okay, So he wants them to know that. But along with that comes a whole lot of other extraneous stuff that maybe, you know, do they have to know all that? You know, why do they, why do they know that? Okay, well, what then? Okay, And so the what then is kind of a follow-up to the uh, I want you to know brethren statement there from verses 12 and 13. Uh, Paul wanted the Philippians to know about his circumstances and the consequential responses by the brethren in his proximity. That's verses 14 through 17. And Paul's telling them about both. The one led into the other because he says I want you to know my circumstances turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He wanted them to know that. And then out of that came the good guys and the bad guys. Out of that came these two groups, uh, I believe, of believers from Ephesus, or could be Rome or wherever he was. But these two groups of believers got all excited to start preaching Christ. And so he wanted them to know that also. Well, why? Again, point four, what then? Paul wanted the Philippians to know about his circumstances, verses 12 and 13, and the consequential responses by the brethren in his proximity, verses 14 through 17. So the question then is, why? And then he answers, only that. Okay? And we got a, it's kind of an interesting combination here of a why and an only that. Uh, the, the what then uh, is, is almost rhetorical. Uh, he's not really expecting them to answer because he's going to give them an answer immediately. And the answer he gives immediately is only that says, well, just this. What then? Just this. Only that. And uh, in this answer, I think we find a fundamental principle of expository preaching. I think um, we can get information across, and if we stop in verse 17 and we never give you the what then, only that, I think we failed as expository preachers. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's um, and I've been guilty of this. A lot, a lot of pastors have been guilty of this in, in getting information out there so you know the doctrine, you know what the Bible says, you know what it means. But maybe we don't, we're not as strong in getting across the what then, uh, only that applications, whereby we say, all right, so you know this, what are you doing about it? What does this mean to you? What, how does it affect you? And, 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 and 
what do we say about something like that? And what do we think about something like that? And uh, so he uses this. And it's curious to me. Paul employs the same question in Romans 3.3, which uh, we can look at. In Romans chapter 3, we begin the chapter, what advantage has the Jew or what benefit of circumcision? And then he says, great in every respect. See, Paul, this is he's so, such a genius. He asks a question and then he answers it. Okay? So in chapter 1, he's talking about Gentile depravity. And in chapter 2, it's Jewish depravity. And now in chapter 3, he says, well then, is there, is there an advantage? And he says, yes. Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were the stewards of the Hebrew canon. That it was the Jewish people, the, the Hebrew people that received the Hebrew scriptures. And so the advantage was far greater than any other people on the planet. You know, you could point to any other people and uh, it wasn't uh, Roman prophets with Roman scriptures, okay? Or Greek prophets with Greek scriptures or, or Ethiopian. I mean, it was Hebrew prophets with Hebrew scriptures. And the covenant nation on this earth had every advantage imaginable. But then he asked this what then question. And so he drives it to a, uh, a point then to ask and answer the, uh, the, uh, the so what with respect to this. So what then? What's the, what's the implications? Okay, this being true, what does that then entail? What, what, what goes with that? What are the consequences of that? What, what follows from that? And so he, he spells it out then. If some do not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. And so he goes on and he's going to explain this, that yes, they're entrusted with the oracles, they're entrusted with the scriptures, but that doesn't give them an automatic free pass. They have to make the application themselves, they have to believe and, and, uh, and so forth. Anyway, so it's not unique to Philippians that Paul will employ this kind of what then kind of question, but he's, he's employing it here. And so we might rephrase it or we might ask a thing about, well, why do I need to know this? Why do I care? What does God think about it? Okay? And we should ask that in every passage that we're developing. If, uh, you know, not just, uh, you know, this circumstance of, of uh, motivation behind uh, preaching. Um, okay, so there's a group with right motivation, there's a group with wrong motivation. What then? Okay, well, how about make sure you have the right motivation? How about uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of application that can be made with a what then kind of question being asked. So uh, what do I think about this? What do I think about that crowd that's serving God with wrong motivations? Well, what does God think about it? Okay, start there. And then uh, what should I think about it? And how does that come together? And, uh, and so forth. So why do I need to know this? Why do I care? What does God think about it? These are all useful questions that, that uh, could be asked and should be asked. And then based on that, we have additional questions such as, how does this truth shape my attitude? How does this truth guide my thinking? How does this truth, truth choose my words or drive my actions? Because the living and abiding Word of God is far more than just simply information. It's not just gnosis. It's not just data or facts or you know, disconnected points of, of things. Okay? We have enough of that <laughs> in our life, okay? Um, I mean, you learn things and you wonder, why do I know that? Do I, do I want to know that? Can I, can I forget that sometime soon? Because it just seems like, you know, the more of those extraneous things, um, am, am I exhausting my capacity to, to remember things that really matter? <laughs> can I... Could I memorize more scripture verses if I wasn't wasting my time with all these Scrabble spelling words? So you ask those kind of questions, right? Um, but the thing is, when you're, when you're, if it's something secular, if it's something earthly, if it's something Scrabble, okay, so it's, it's, it's facts, it's data, it's gnosis, whatever. Uh, it's not divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, okay? But the living and abiding Word of God is just that. And it, it, uh, it lives in you, it dwells richly within you. It leads you, it guides you, it encourages you, it comforts you. We see everything we've been learning in Proverbs, everything that God's wisdom will do for you. It will watch over you. It will embrace you if you embrace her. Okay? 
So how does this truth shape my attitude, guide my thinking, choose my words, or drive my actions? And if it's not doing any of that, I would stop and ask myself, well, isn't it supposed to? Why is it not? Why am, am I, uh, what is my attitude towards the Word of God? Am I just here to get information? Am I just here to get knowledge? Well, if, if so, if, if, that, if it becomes an end rather than a means to an end, I think I've got problems. I think I'm not, I'm not walking the walk I'm supposed to walk in that, in that regard. How does this truth shape my attitude, guide my thinking, choose my words, or drive my actions? And uh, the, the, the reverence for the Word of God and the, and the fear of the Lord that, that goes hand in hand with that. I think, you know, the, uh, the whole, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to preach the burning bush anymore. Because maybe as a culture, as a generation, as, a, as I don't know, but have we lost that reverence and that fear of the Lord? That uh, we're on holy ground, we should take off our shoes, we're approaching, that the God of the universe is choosing to speak to us tonight? Is that not a big deal? And, and you know, that reverence and that, that, that not only is He speaking to us tonight, but He expects that His words are not going to return void. As, the, as, the, as He sends forth the rain, okay? I mean, what an illustration. He sends forth the rain and it accomplishes His purpose. So too will the word be that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me void without accomplishing the purpose for which I sent it. And if he has to send more and more and more and 98 cubic trillion gallons of it, he's got a reason for sending all that rain. He's got a reason for sending all that doctrine. He's got a reason for speaking to his people. And are we paying attention? And so I, I enjoy the what then question. So we've got a lot of information about what Paul has seen, about what his uh, followers have seen and the consequential response and some are responding for right reasons and some are responding for wrong reasons, but most are responding one way or the other. And then he has this what then question, this fundamental question, kind of the so what, okay? And, uh, and, and, and I think we, that's useful. We ought to stop every now and then and make sure we're, we're not neglecting that, see? If, uh, if, if um, you know, some things we've had lately, if we if we talk about the humanity of Christ and the hypostatic union, and, and did that begin in the Bethlehem manger or did that begin at the alpha moment of time? All right. Well, okay, we want to get the information. We want to know the truth. We want good doctrine, not false doctrine. But more than that, beyond simply knowing facts, why? What do we, why do I need to know that? What, what impact does that have? What's the, what's the takeaway from that? How does that... How does that, I mean, knowing that, does that just equip me to go correct people that don't know that? <laughs> okay, so yeah, God gave me all this information so I can go around the world and, and fix people that have it wrong. Why do I know all this? What, what's my takeaway? What's my application? Does it have larger ramifications for other passages of Scripture? I believe it does. And so a lot of this, why do I need to know this? Why do I care? What does God think about it? The fact is that he, God knows everything, but he hasn't put everything in the Bible. So what he has put in the Bible then is, is incumbent upon us to embrace it and, and humble ourselves before it and live it out. We have to live it out. So we, how, does it, how does it shape my attitude? How does it guide my thinking? How, do, how does it choose my words? If I'm tempted to say one thing, but then the Word of God says, well, let your speech be seasoned with salt, with graces, with salt. And uh, perhaps there is a more gracious way to express something. The Word of God may impel you to do that or drive your actions. So I think uh, a lot of that comes into this why, um, what then kind of, kind of question. Alright? And then he answers with an only that. An only that. And if there's only one thing, well, start there. Okay? Paul only lists one thing. And maybe Maybe tomorrow he'll think of something else, okay? Maybe a week later he'll think of a third thing. Maybe, you know, maybe down the road he'll think of four or five other things. But for now, the only thing he can come up with is this. <laughs> so it's kind of a, well, okay, if nothing else, you know. And, and that's useful also, isn't it? You know, it's like a sanctified silver lining. It's like, well, okay, as terrible as it is, at least 
Christ is being preached. So, uh, all right, Paul, I get you. Um, I agree. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. All right, cool. Christ is proclaimed. I'm, I'm happy that Christ is proclaimed. And um, maybe, maybe I can think of some other things as well <laughs> to, be able, to be able to answer my, uh, my what then question. All right. Either way, and this is point five, either way Christ is proclaimed. Either way. Whether it's for right reasons or wrong reasons, either way. And, um, you know, ultimately speaking, who looks on the heart anyway? God's the only one that looks upon the heart. If, um, if somebody's preaching and, and God knows that the motivations are wrong, um, somebody else is just a, a third-party observer, they don't know. They just see Christ being preached. They hear it being preached. And uh, if it, is it a pretense? Well, they don't know. Okay? Maybe they'll come to know. It might become evident at some point. But at least for now, Christ is preached and that's something to, uh, to rejoice in. And uh, there's, a, there's an expression here. We're going to spend some time with this. The idea of a pretense. The idea of making an excuse for something. The stated reason for something, but it's not the real reason. All right, but it's the public reason. It's the one that everybody talks about. Okay, it's the one that you know. It's like when uh, when somebody leaves a church. There's uh, there's the reason they give the pastor, and then there's the real reason. All right, and uh, and and sometimes there's multiple in different things. And and so we know what a pretense is. We know when you're making an excuse for something, and uh, it sounds good, but it's not true. All right, there's a lot of that that takes place. And always has been. It's human nature. The Greeks had terms for this because this was around back in their time. Okay, the Hebrews had terms for this because this this was around back in their time. In fact, uh, I think uh, humans have been making excuses since Adam and Eve. You know, I mean, uh, they've ever, ever since the fall when the Lord came and found them, they started making excuses. And uh, so it's not uh, it's not unique to our generation or or anything of the sort. In uh, verse eighteen here, it says, "Eta prophase." Eta aletheia. And so it's whether this or that, whether pretense, whether truth. And uh, so whether in pretense or whether truth. And uh, the vocabulary uh, for uh, prophase, I'll give you both of these terms. I'll give you prophase, I'll give you aletheia. Um, but beyond the fact that they're nouns, we have what's being used here in the sense that they are uh, dative, okay? Dative case. You're learning dative case right now is the case of instrument, is the case of means. It speaks of how something is done, or even motivation, why something is done. And since everything Paul's spoken of uh, in the earlier verses all centers on motivation, envy, strife, um, think, a selfish ambition, uh, in order of thinking to cause me distress, all those phrases there are speaking of motive. Okay, And so I prefer to take these datives as datives that speak to motive more so than means. But in either case, the instrumental dative indicating motive and means. And so we're talking about a pretense and we're talking about truth. And uh, each of these then becomes a motive. And uh, in either way, Paul says, I'm still going to rejoice. And uh, that's kind of the whole point of what he's saying here. So what's a pretense? We know what a pretense is. We know what a pretense is. Uh, it's the dative singular feminine of prophasis. P-R-O-P-H-A-S-I-S. Prophasis. And if that sounds familiar to you, then you've been paying attention. Um, we dealt a lot with the self-evident chains of Paul as being manifestly in Christ. And, and so uh, in the vocabulary there we had phino and we had physis and we had some of the other cognate forms that speak about what is apparent, what is evident, remember? And so the chains were evidently in Christ. And, and there's a lot, we, we spent a couple of sessions talking about what God, when God makes something evident, we better pay attention. When God shows us something, we better pay attention. And so we have a phino to reveal, and we have uh, the, the, the vocabulary that we were looking at with phino and phanaros and phanarao, this was under uh, point 2b when we were going through the points there. So God causes something to appear, and it, it appears, it is shining, it is evident, and we are accountable for what God has made evident. All right? And if it's self-evident, if it's evident, then uh, 
you know, we can ignore it, but then we're accountable for ignoring it because God made it evident. We should be obedient to what God makes evident. Now this term is a, is a kind of a black sheep of the family, if you will, but it's in the same family. All right, It's in the Fossus family, it's in the final family, but it's pro Fossus. And so if you want to think of it this way, you know, God will manifest something, He will shine the light on something, He will display something, He will make something evident. But if you're going to come along and, and accomplish a uh, profino as a verb or create a prophosis as a noun, uh, then, then you're putting your view out in front. Okay? And in some respects, you're getting your manifestation out there first so that hopefully um, that's all that anybody ever sees. Okay? No one will see the real reason because you shoved yours up front. And so you profinoed your, uh, your prophosis. And, and so that becomes then the excuse. That becomes the, uh, the talking point. That becomes the, that becomes the, uh, the uh, conversation piece because it was the first excuse that got out there. Might be a useful way to think of a prophosis in any event. Number 4392 is the Strong's number. There's only seven uses in the New Testament, not so many. Um, and three of them are parallel in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew 23, 14, Mark 12, 40, and uh, Luke 20, 47. And in those illustrations, the, the pretense, the pretext, or the uh, show was all about um, convincing people of how spiritual you are. And Jesus warned about this. He was warning about, about the hypocrites, the Pharisees, they loved making the long, glowing prayers. And the longer the better, the more glowing the better. And uh, the whole point to these long, glorious, eloquent prayers is to impress people. And people will sit there listening to those prayers and go, ooh, <laughs> wow, I wish I could pray like that. And this, how holy are these people, right? So we don't have to read all of these. They, they are slightly different in their, uh, they are parallel, but the expressions are rendered a little bit differently in the different Gospels. Uh, but Matthew 23, 14 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. So for a prophesis you make long prayers. And that's uh, Matthew. It's a manuscript question whether that verse really belongs there or not. Mark twelve forty. Uh, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And anything about the long robes is obviously that shows how special you are. And uh, that, uh, you know, not just anyone can wear a long robe like that because, you know, most, uh, most people have to work. And, uh, you know, you, you don't wear those kind of robes if you're a worker. Uh, but the Pharisees, obviously, the scribes, this leisure class that has been set apart and so gloriously designated as teachers, um, they can wear these long robes. And the respectful greetings in the marketplaces, the chief seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at the banquets, the, the uh, designated parking spaces, and you know whatever else, that uh, the perks that come with the, uh, the position. And it goes on to say, who devour widows' houses, and for appearance sake, that's our prophesis here, for appearance sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now, if, if they're just doing it for the show, they're doing it on a pretense, and, uh, and God sees through all of that phoniness. Something similar in Luke twenty forty seven. In John's account, it's a little bit different. John fifteen twenty two. It's a different context altogether. John fifteen twenty two. The um, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Now they have no pretense for their sin. He just stripped away every pretense from this crowd by virtue of his presence, by virtue of his ministry by uh, uh, his uh, messages. Uh, it's, it's curious, it says, uh, well, there's a longer context that leads up to that, but just 
Focusing on verse 22 then, the fact that He has come makes the difference. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. In other words, they would not have accountability and judgment the way that they have now because the pretenses have all been stripped aside. Now the condemnation is, is just or doubly uh, applicable. Now they have no pretense for their sin. You know, it's, it's the mercy of God that is patient towards you while you're growing up and while you're learning and, and so forth because you're just oblivious and ignorant and didn't even know it was a sin. But it's been bugging you and then you, uh, your conscience is pricked and you learn some doctrine and you realize, oh, that's the problem. Uh, this, uh, this isn't pleasing in God's sight. I need to, uh, you know, I need to quit my, you know, my, my career as a car thief or whatever it might be. You just get convicted at a certain point that, you know, I'm just, I'm, I just, the Word of God is, would have me to, to, to change something here. And it, it, it happens. God is so gracious about that. And, uh, in, in a lot of ways. Stan Newton got to his first church in Washington State and he had, I forget the numbers, he had like 30 families in the church and 20 of them were shacked up, not married. And, uh, and he thought, how does that work? <laughs> okay? And they're all in church. Two-thirds of his church. You know, so how do you preach to church people that, I mean, what's going on here? And so uh, he did and was gentle and patient and, and over the span of two or three years and Bible teaching and more and more started coming to him and saying, you know, we're kind of thinking we, we probably ought to get married. And Stan said, all right, I'll be glad to marry. They had a whole string of weddings. And uh, I may not be telling the story exactly right, but this is how I heard it and how I remember it. But there's the point. And, and so when that conviction comes, then the pretext is gone. Okay, You can no longer feign ignorance and say, oh, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah you know. Okay, you've been taught, you're accountable, and uh, the pretext is gone. And Jesus and the Word of God likes to destroy all these Weasley prefect, uh, pretexts that human beings uh, are so creative in coming up with. Maybe my favorite one is in Acts 27. Acts 27. Of all of these, this one's fun. The whole, uh, the whole thing, the whole chapter is hilarious. Um, this is the chapter where Paul gets shipwrecked. Okay. Uh, Paul is uh, being shipped off to Rome. He's made his appeal to Caesar. And um, it's just comedy after comedy, I think, in, um, in this. Mostly because um, uh, Paul keeps speaking. And, and if say what you will about the Apostle Paul. There was never a problem he was faced with that he couldn't talk about it. Because he, he was always speaking. He was always talking to people. And in this chapter, it's, it's hilarious because the ship captain and the professional sailors and a lot of the, they, um, they pretty much just ignore him. Okay? Uh, they got this goofy preacher on their boat and they're just putting up with him. And um, so we have examples like this. And uh, like in verse... 9, when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. And he said to them, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, only, but not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what Paul was being said by Paul. Okay? All right. Thanks, Paul. That's great. You're a good Bible teacher, but let's, you know, let the sailors sail. Um, and there's other things as well and something else happens and Paul speaks up and they ignore him and then something else happens and Paul speaks up and they ignore him and um, yeah, the whole chapter makes me laugh. Verse 21 when they had gone a long time without food then Paul stood up in their midst and said man you ought to have followed my advice <laughs> and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, uh, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve before me, saying, you know, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted uh, that all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. I'm sure they were real happy about that and uh, different things. Now, as, uh, so we have the pattern here, right? Something happens and Paul talks about it, something happens and Paul's talking about it. 
And in most cases, they're ignoring them or we don't have a response that's indicated. But then, um, sure enough, they're approaching land here. And um, so they're being driven about. Verse 27, the sailors began to surmise they were approaching some land. Hmm. Okay. Um, so they took some soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took another sounding, found it to be 15 fathoms. And, uh, okay. Well, that's what Paul wanted to talk about, wasn't it? He was kind of telling us that, wasn't he? And so fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. And, uh, as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship, and, and here's what's fun, in verse 30, and they had let down the boat, the ship's boat, into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, from the bow, right? Say, oh yeah, yeah, trust us, you know. These filthy rats, they're just deserting the sinking ship is what they're doing, okay? And uh, so uh, that's their pretense, that's their prophesis in uh, our vocabulary study here. Yeah, yeah, trust us. That's the ticket. We're just we're just trying to fix the, the anchors here to the to the bow. All right. And Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, very smart here, okay? Because army guys don't usually trust navy guys, and this is kind of cool. Um, he said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Okay? They're 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 lying about that little boat they're getting out in here. They're, they're leaving you here. So uh, the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. <laughs> you, know, you can imagine. The, the sailors are still trying to let the boat down and here come the soldiers. They just chop the rope and there goes the boat. And, and uh, yeah. That's kind of fun. Isn't this a hilarious chapter? I crack up when I read this chapter. And they crash on the island and then they get bit by a snake and all the natives think they're going to die and it's just fun. All right, so this is the pretense, okay? And the pretense is not true. The pretense is, 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 could be the direct opposite of what you're saying it is. But the point is, is you want to have a public presentation for whatever reason to cover your tracks and to, to uh, disguise what your real intentions are. And again, with reference back to Philippians here, they're preaching Christ, but that's not what they want to do. That's not what they really intend. Okay, They're intending to cause Paul discomfort. They're intending to cause Paul uh, um, discouragement. And, and so they're doing what they're doing, but for totally opposite reasons of why they're talking about it, why they say they're doing it. Does that make sense? And it's just as snaky dangerous as this group of sailors with the, with the lifeboat. Okay, it's, uh, it's, it's totally false. It's a pretense. And uh, I think we can understand that for what it is. Um, the last use, of course, is Philippians 1.18. That's our passage tonight. And then our last use is 1 Thessalonians 2.5. 1 Thessalonians 2.5. I'll have to close with that. Unless I can get Robert to go back there and move the clock back the two minutes that he advanced it. Um, then uh, we'll have to end with this. Um, but when you talk about a genuine ministry and the Thessalonians knew that Paul was genuine, he says, for when we came to you, brethren, we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ you might have exerted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And so, there's a lot of people that preach with a pretext for greed. And uh, the pretext is, oh, we're bringing in the kingdom, but the real reason is, hey, we're making money on the deal here. Okay? And Paul says, you know, we weren't about that. And uh, he called them to witness on that regard as well. Anyway, so that's, uh, that's prophecies. We'll pick up on this uh, Sunday morning because we've got to get the other side, we've got to get the truth side of this. And truth uh, used as an instrumental is instru- is. is interesting. So we'll look at the instrumental uses of truth in, uh, on Sunday morning. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your grace and your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. And I pray, Father, uh, for myself. I pray for my deacons. I pray for everybody, the Sunday school teachers. I pray for um, 
the nursery volunteers, for the property team, for the piano player, I mean, just everything, Father, the violinist, um, that everybody that's doing what they're doing will be doing it for the right reasons, Father, not on a pretext, not um, in any hypocrisy, but, Father, in uh, pure motivation, from love, knowing your appointments, Father, everything that we see on the good guy side of things here in Philippians chapter 1. So uh, take this passage and give us the so what, give us the application, the what then, and, and show us, Father, how to live this truth out. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.